gotten um, a uh, email from Latte about a slightly revised syllabus, which we'll keep slightly revising um, over the course of the course, and um, w uh, and the revision, of course, isn't less reading. Eventually, it'll be, but right now it's slightly more reading, but only slightly. Um, so I think that's okay. All right. Um, does anyone want to? Since you all liked it so much, anything to say? All right, we'll talk. We'll talk. It'll be fun. Um, I wanted to read you a little bit. I don't know if you guys started looking at the Coleridge or the Johnson yet, um, but one reason to do it is that you can see um, people over the course of centuries and even the um, most amazing um, literary types struggling with trying to figure out what Shakespeare meant and whether things were typos and uh, what kind of corrections uh, they would want to put in. And it's actually really, really interesting to see Shakespeare not before he's canonized. What does canonized mean, anyone? Like when we talk about, well, you guys talk about canon as an adjective, like um, there's the extended universe and then there's canon. Um, but do you know what it means in an older context? Like in the Catholic sense? Sure. Like, so it's like when you're, it's part of like becoming a saint. So it's like when you're established as like legit, for lack of better words. Okay, yeah. So to be canonized is to be, is um, part of the process of sainthood. Um, what does it mean when it applies to a text? Like what is the canon of the mass, for example, in a Catholic? Do you know that in a Catholic um, context? I, I mean... <laughs> I know what, there's like a modern version of canonization, which is like to do with the text, which is the author writes something and it's in canon. I don't know how it pertains to Catholic, like the religion specifically, but, yeah. you know, canonization is like J.K. Rowling said, Hogwarts is the wizarding school, so it's canon. Right. That Hogwarts is the wizarding school. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Okay, good. So it's not, so in, in a sense what you're doing is you're, um, distinguishing their canon from fan fiction, um, yeah. which is a standard in in the in the fan fiction universe. That's a standard um, distinction to make. Yeah. Um, wasn't the, the Catholic canon like when they all kind of decided which stories were going to be put into the? Yes. So when canon when you talk about the canonization of books as opposed to of people. Uh, what the canon is, is the books that are um, first off the books that comprise the Bible. So that there are, some of you know about the Apocrypha. Anyone know any Apocryphal um, books of the Bible? Do you, know, do you know any by name? Oh, by name? Yeah. Probably not. I, not off the top of my head. I think one's Thomas. Is Thomas? No. no. Thomas is, is an apostle. Is an apostle. Yeah. Not all, the, not all the apostles have books. But well, there, there actually is a, a heterodox gospel of Thomas, which belongs to the Gnostic um, world. But there's, if, if you get a complete Bible, um, it will contain the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha tell stories that are not quite um, canon. They're not quite regarded as um, of the same authority as the um, Bible, either the... Um, the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Bible uh, that is uh, generally 
accepted. So the Apocrypha are a little bit harder to find, but not that much harder to find. So there's the book of Tobit, um, there is the book of Esdras, and there's a book called Ecclesiasticus as opposed to Ecclesiastes. Um, so there are a bunch of books which are apocryphal, which is to say they're not regarded as having the same quite holy status as the canonical books, but they are still regarded as important enough to be read. Then they're just heterodox books that are not part of the canon at all. But the canon was established first by, for the Hebrew Bible by the um, rabbis and then for the Christian Bible by the church fathers. The canon is established as the books that do have God's imprimatur. And the idea would be canonically that if you read any book within the canon, the what you're reading is what God wants you to read. The other things can be interesting or they can be wrong, but they, are, they don't quite have that status. So that idea of canonization became secularized when people were trying to figure out what the, to quote Matthew Arnold, uh, who you should quote as little as possible, uh, what the best um, that had ever been um, written or thought by human beings, what works represented the best that had ever been written or thought by human beings, and they formed the canon. So there is a kind of canon of classical literature that includes Homer and Virgil, and a canon of English literature which includes Chaucer and Shakespeare. And so that idea that there is a canon, that's what you're supposed to read, that's now taken to be an oppressive idea, and the, but it is an idea that goes way, way back, goes back to the establishment of the books of the Bible. And when a work is canonized, there's also this sense of canonical readings or canonical versions of the text. So a canonical version is something like the she seemed a better way is a line in King Lear that some editors thought might actually be she seemed an April day, which just makes no sense at all now, but it's partly because we're so used to the canonical version. And one of the things to see when you're reading Johnson and Coleridge is they, Johnson especially, is trying to figure out the text of Shakespeare. And what that means is if he doesn't understand a line, one reason that it may be hard to understand is that a typo has snuck in. And there were lots of typos in, in, the, in the printing of Shakespeare's works or lots of mistakes in the printing of Shakespeare's works. And there are people who have devoted their life to studying how those mistakes can be made and what the kinds of mistakes you can find in Shakespeare can tell you about the production of the, of the printed texts of the plays. So that Shakespeare wrote in manuscript, he didn't have a word processor, he didn't even have a typewriter. Anyone know when the typewriter was invented, by the way? I know, it's hard to believe, but anyone know? Guess? What's your guess, Matt? Uh, 15, 1500s? Typewriter, no. 1800s? Yeah, late 19th century. So before that, everything is done, everyone writes by hand. Typesetting goes back to Gutenberg, but typewriting, actually being able to, to produce a, a, something in type yourself, that couldn't be done until the late 19th century. 
And so what the way typesetting worked was that a typesetter would put little would put letters into a frame and would have to do it letter by letter by letter. So if you were typesetting Shakespeare and you got to to be or not to be, you would have to put that into a frame. But as you may know, you know this from selfies and so on, uh, when you print something, you're, you're actually the, the thing that's doing the printing. Like, has anyone had experience with rubber stamps? Like literal rubber stamps, not, oh yeah, just rubber stamping something. Yeah. Has anyone not had experience with rubber stamps? Okay, you haven't. Okay, what's a rubber stamp? Yeah. It's like a little thing. It's like kind of like plasticky, and then it's got like a design on it, and you put it in ink, and then you stamp it on a piece of paper, and it leaves like the reflection imprint. Okay, and why is it important that it leaves the reflection imprint? Because um, whatever you're like putting on the actual stamp needs to be backwards if you want it to like look right on the paper. Yeah. So does everyone know that? Does this make sense to everyone? That if you get a rubber stamp which has text on it, the text will be in mirror writing. It's like looking, if you're, if you're in a bar and you're looking at you know, the, the um, drunken pub and you're inside and the, you're just seeing it through the window, it'll be backwards, drunken pub rather than drunken pub. So typesetters have to set the text backwards. That is, what they're doing is they're putting little pieces of type into a frame, and if they want to be, if they want to um, have to be or not to be show up, it'll look like um, uh, Da Vinci famously wrote this way, hoping that people wouldn't be able to read what he said, um, to be or not to be. Um, now, you may have noticed that I hesitated before doing the B, and this was a genuine hesitation. This wasn't my wonderful dramatic skills coming out. Um, I hesitated before doing the B because what does it look like? A D. So I had to think twice to make sure that this was a backwards B, and I hesitated before doing the N because the N looks symmetrical, and in fact, I screwed up. Um, that's a normal N, and the way the N should have looked was like that, to get not. Yeah. Sorry, wasn't typeset letter by letter? Yeah. So I'm, why wouldn't you, why, like, if it's stamping letter by letter, why do you need to write it backwards? Because you're doing a line. Right, because but you're you setting, you're setting. independent of the other, right? Oh, no, you mean, no, 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 you're making one. You're making oh, a stamp. Oh, you're making one stamp yes. at a time. And, and so uh, you have to get it backwards yeah. such that you can flip it. Yeah. 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 You're making a temporary stamp. So this isn't a frame, which is holding these letters in place. And what you do is you put the letters in, they're held in place, you print your 500 or 1,000 copies of the page, then you remove the letters and you set the next page. This is one line, but you set the whole page. In fact, you probably set four pages at a time because uh, it, this is advanced Shakespeare. You can be bored. Uh, imagine a page of the Boston Globe or the New York Times um, unfolded. That is, you take the whole page out. 
So if you do that, if you take a page from the newspaper, do you guys like know that they're paper newspapers? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, legacy journalism. So if you take one, what you actually have, if you spread it out for your bird to poop on, what you have are four pages of four newspaper pages that are on a single sheet, right? Does everyone understand that? And those four newspaper pages on a single sheet, that sheet is called, uh, wait for it, folio. So the single sheet is called a folio. And folio comes from a word meaning? Leaf. Leaf. So it's a single leaf of paper. Yeah. Isn't that why books, you had to cut the pages? Yes. Does any, do people know that you have to cut pages? Yeah. Has anyone ever found a book where you had to cut the pages? Uh, the library has a couple, yeah. Um, if you didn't know that from um, actually experiencing one, you might have known it from reading The Great Gatsby. There's a moment in The Great Gatsby where uh, someone says, look at all these books, but he's not so pompous that he actually cut the pages. He doesn't want people to think he's, he, he's not trying to fool people into thinking he's read them. So that's Gatsby sort of hits the sweet spot as far as this person is concerned. So if you go to look at the first folio, which Brandeis owns, do you guys know that? Yeah, Brandeis owns one of about 260 first folios in the world. And in fact, the Brandeis first folio is one of two that there's a really, really good website for Shakespeare scholars if they want to be looking at first folios. The other one's in New Zealand. And um, why, would, why would you care that there's more than one? Well, for one thing is that I'm sure you guys would never do this, but when Shakespeare plays were printed, the printers would start printing and proofread while the printing was going on. And so what would happen is they would proofread, the page would be being printed, they, they'd have printed 20 or 30 copies of the page, and then they would say, wait, to D or not to B? No, oh, that's wrong. And then they would yell, stop the presses. <laughs> and they would then correct the type and then continue to print. So what you can do is correct some misprints in a folio by looking at later versions, sometimes you know 20 minute later versions of the same sheet, but after a correction has been put in and then the printing continues. So paper was really expensive, ink was really expensive. You don't want to know what ink was made of, by the way. But paper was really expensive, <coughs> ink was really expensive. And so they, they'd make corrections, but they wouldn't toss what they'd already printed. What they'd already printed, they would use, and um, you would get better versions as you got later in the printing process. But also the proofreading was going on in order, so it might be that you read page one, but you hadn't read the last page yet, or you might have read the last page, but not the first page yet, because there are four pages per sheet. And so those four pages per sheet are being printed backwards, the compositors, that is those who are putting the letters into the frames, are also making mistakes. And one of the mis and which is why they have to correct things. The kind of mistake they will make is putting a B for a D. They're typical sorts of mistakes that they will make. One thing that they will have is they have all the letters in drawers. And those drawers are um, in what they call cases. There's a case full of letters, and then another case full of letters. 
the letters that they needed most of were easiest to hand, that is, they were on um, hand level, and above them were letters that they didn't need as often. So uppercase and lowercase? Is that right. So the uppercase letters were the, were the capital letters, what we wrongly call capital letters, because they didn't need as much of them, so they were just higher up. The, why, why is it wrong that we call them capital letters? Um, I think that's an Americanism from the 19th century. I don't care that, that it's wrong, uh, but it's, it's like capital as in, as in important. Mm -hmm. But uh, I got corrected all through elementary school and they kept saying, no, uppercase, which you know, made no sense to me. Not capital, which made total sense, but that's I'm just passing on uh, my elementary school teacher's corrections to you. <coughs> that's fine. Yeah, Cassie. Can you tell us what the ink was made of? It's like yes. eating away at the yeah. ink that you didn't tell us. Piss, among other things. What? That makes a lot of sense. Of what? What piss? Piss of the printers. Piss of who? They, when they made ink, they, they would dissolve some of the other stuff, like the, the um, charcoal that they were grinding in order to make ink. That makes a lot of sense. They would dissolve it in piss because piss well, is does. acidic. And well, like human piss. Expensive. Human piss, yeah, they would piss. That's, they they would get sanitary. They could it is yeah, yeah, that's true. That was why they did it. There's actually some people are afraid that there are old disease lurking, old spores lurking in very old books that haven't been opened. <laughs> Um, so piss is probably a good thing for ink for that reason, but yeah, they would they would dissolve. People have done chemical studies of what's in ink, and um, they've been surprised. Among others. Yeah, that exactly. Um, so that anyhow, um, it's it's not like there wasn't piss and shit all over, because there was. Yeah. Uh, sewers were open, you know, that they didn't have pipes. The way waste ran was down gutters. So it was um, not for today's squeamish. If you do some time travel, like in that Susan Cooper um, novel, uh, King of Shadows, has anyone read it? It's really good. Oh, I think I have. Is it like a kid's book? Yeah. Then yes, I think I have. Yeah, it's a time travel. Um, someone goes back to Shakespeare's England, and... Um, one of them has the plague, right? So there's like a kid who like yeah. gets modern medicine. Right, yes, the spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a real Shakespearean actor. What happens in this novel is a, a modern kid in a Shakespeare class in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is swapped for a Shakespearean, a young Shakespearean actor of the same age. He finds himself like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. He finds himself in Shakespeare's theater. He meets the actors. It's all really cool. He meets Shakespeare. It's all really fun. This is a really good way for you to learn a little bit in eighth grade about what was going on in Shakespeare's theater. And at the end, it turns out that, that God was essentially needed some one of Shakespeare's actors not to die of the plague. So he was swiped for this kid with the same name, and he was cured in a modern Cambridge hospital, and then they were swiped back so this guy could live. So that's the story. But it's good. Susan Cooper is, she's really good. Um, I mean, she's not going to seem really good to you because she's so old-fashioned, comparatively speaking, but she is really good. Uh, there's a terrible movie made of one of her novels that she disowned. Anyhow. Um, so, lowercase, and they have to do everything backwards and in high heels, as uh, um, 
the comic Frank and Ernest once said about Ginger Rogers. And so one of the things, though, is that they can save a little bit of metal and a little bit of type by using certain letters that can be used in two ways. So some of you may know that in old-fashioned manual typewriters, you probably don't know this, but in old-fashioned manual typewriters, the way you do an exclamation mark, it's a pain. How do you do it? No, you have to do, because um, I have like a really, really old one. That's great. Um, and so you have to do like the period, and then there's like the, there's a straight mark. It's, it's the like, open quotation. Yes, yeah, so you have to like go back and yeah. like do it. It's, it's so annoying. Yeah, so you, so you type a period, then you go back a space, and you type an open single quotation. Yeah. And think how hard it would be to text if you had to do that. Like, I'm right outside! <laughs> um, so, but it saved keys. It saved um, the necessity for keys. So the way you did a W was you did two Vs. So you didn't need a letter W. You would just use two Vs to do a W. Um, more interesting, not that I know you're already on the edge of your seats, but more interesting still is that the letter N and the letter U are the same letter. And N is an upside-down U, or U is an upside-down N. And so what that meant was that you didn't need a W, you didn't need both an N and a U, just a single letter could do double duty for an N and a U. It's also true that for a lot of them, I and J, you don't need both. Um, you can use an I. This starts changing in Shakespeare's day. But um, if you look at old-fashioned writing, you'll often see I's where you expect J's or J's where you expect I's, like Julius Caesar, I-U-L-I-U-S. Yeah. Is this, and maybe I, I heard something about a Shakespeare play where he created the name Imogen because Imogen was a popular name. Is this like something yes. about like how the ends were so close together? Right. So like it could have been the printers just put two ends too close together and exactly. that's the name Imogen. Exactly. So it should be Imogen. This is in Cymbeline. Yeah. But it comes out as... And that's actually two ends that the printers thought it was a double end, and it looked to people like an M. It's also the case that we don't know what... Well, we do know what Shakespeare's handwriting looked like. Um, it wasn't the best, but it wasn't bad. <laughs> um, but printers had to read that handwriting. And they often got things wrong, especially with names. They also, you know, kind of, it was late, and they would sometimes um, just make obvious and easy to make mistakes. So there's a wonderful moment in Twelfth Night where Viola is one of the characters. Who's Viola, anyone? Anyone? Speak. Okay, yes. So she was in a shipwreck, and then she has to dress up as a boy named Cesario to, like, get a job. And yeah. Then, yeah. Do you yeah. Okay. Yeah, and hilarity ensues. Yeah. Um, okay, so in what, if you look at the speech prefixes, someone define what a speech prefix is? Guess? Is that, like, the shortened name before the line? It doesn't have to be shortened. Okay. It's, ju it's just it's what the actors don't say when they're um, reading through a play. They don't say, Hamlet, to be or not to be, that is a question. <laughs> Hamlet sees the Hamlet part, or the actor playing Hamlet, and skips that part, and just says to be or not to be. So that's called a speech prefix. Um, as opposed to, this is something that I'm really interested in, what doesn't matter for this course, but just so you know it. 
there's another uh, for, there's another technical term which is called a speech tag. And what a speech tag is, do you know what it is? You're not. A, I think I've heard about that, but isn't it like, wouldn't it be like effectively this? It's similar, right? It's similar, yeah. but if you're reading aloud, you say it. So a speech oh. tag is a he said, she said, oh, okay. um, she remarked, they cried. Uh, so the speech tag is just the part that's not quotation marks in a dialogue, but is telling you who's speaking. So speech tags, I think, can be really interesting, but that's for another class. So. Speech prefix is, uh, they have to put, the printers have to put the speech prefixes down. They're often in the margin, so sometimes printers will miss them, and speeches will be assigned to the wrong person. So you'll be reading a play, and then someone will be saying something totally out of character, and you have to decide why they're saying this thing that's totally out of character. And then you can notice that the same person seems to get another speech prefix 10 lines later, which you would never do. It's not Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind. Hamlet, to suffer the slings and arrows outrageous fortune. You don't do that. So what that meant was that the printers missed the speech prefix. And then you figure out, if there's only one other person in the scene, you can tell where that speech prefix should go and who the other person speaking is. But sometimes, you know, the printers were just on semi-autopilot. So viola at one point is called violenta because the printers were just automatically doing V-I-O-L and then that usually means violence. So they started putting in this name and then they corrected it again to viola. So if you read any modern version of Shakespeare, none of this is preserved, except if you're reading the um, Arden, it'll be preserved in the apparatus at the bottom of the pages. So you can see all the corrections that are made, and if you open the Arden at random and look at the corrections at the bottom of the page, you'll see that there are corrections on almost every page. So nothing, so there's like, um, no, you're not finding it. No, I'm finding all of them. Yeah, okay. <laughs> corrections on every page. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, I found one page without. <laughs> okay, yeah, the printers were having a good day. That day. <laughs> it was payday. Okay, so one really yeah. famous example in Macbeth, or let me give you two famous examples of Macbeth, and this is what Coleridge and Johnson, among others, in the pre-20th century, they're noting these when they're important. Not all of them, but some of them. So an important one that, that everyone accepts in Macbeth, or almost everyone accepts in Macbeth, is that the witches are called the what? What sisters? Weird sisters. The weird sisters. And um, you should, I think the Arden tells you that that's a two-syllable word. It's weird. It's not like, oh yeah, weird sisters. It's like weird sisters. Uh, to make it work metrically, it has to be two syllables. So they are the weird sisters. But that's not what the folio says. The folio calls them the wayward sisters once and the wayyard sisters another time. And so why weird when wayward seems to make sense? That is a strong correction to make to decide that a word that exists nowhere in Shakespeare, it's not that he uses weird in other plays, because he doesn't. It's a word he never uses. 
and yet everyone accepts that he wrote weird and the printers changed it to wayward. So why would they accept that? Because if you read the sources, as you will for Macbeth, they're called the weird sisters in the sources. So the assumption is that Shakespeare didn't say weird, oh, I never experiment with language, I wouldn't do any, any kind of challenging vocabulary. I'm going to make this user-friendly, um, kind of the schmoop of my day, and make it wayward. He might have, but it's far more likely that in the manuscript he wrote weird, and the printers either didn't read what he was writing, or they didn't know the word, or they thought he was misspelling it because there was no proper spelling at the time. Conventional spelling only comes in, in at the beginning of the 18th century. Do you guys know that? So before that, you couldn't really fail spelling tests. <laughs> so the printers hadn't seen the word, and they assumed that they would put it in a way that was more recognizable to people. This is the guess, that they would put it in a way more recognizable to people, and therefore put it down as wayward, which made sense. That is, sisters who were off the straight and narrow, um, who belonged to the devilish or the infernal part of the universe. So did the printers do that? Well, most editors think so. And if you were to read a version of Macbeth that didn't mention the Weird Sisters, you would feel that it was not canon. But the canon there is established by editors who have good reasons for doing it the way they're doing it, but you can doubt some of those reasons. One thing that we'll see in Antony and Cleopatra, do you remember, Matt, the Antony and Cleopatra uh, correction? I talked about it a little bit in, do you remember Talia or Cassie? So there's a moment in Antony and Cleopatra, see, you teach and teach and teach. <laughs> <laughs> no one remembers shit. Um, there's a moment in Antony and Cleopatra a uh, wonderful, <coughs> wonderful moment where Cleopatra is describing the dead Antony. That's a spoiler. Uh, but it's a tragedy. You know, you know he's dead, right? Okay. He's not still alive. Uh, well, that's what you think. <laughs> yeah, right, well, that is true. Yeah. Um, Cleopatra, memorializing him, says, as for his, as for his bounty, there was no winter in it. And then most, although not all texts, follow that with, an autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. So he was, Antony's bounty was endless. There was no winter in his, boun in his bounty. And this is something that you'll see is true about Antony, that Antony's got preternatural which is a way of saying supernatural without getting the idea of ghosts. So do people know the word preternatural? It's a good word to have. You know. <laughs> yeah, I actually first came upon that word in a translation of the Brothers Karamazov, and it was just a very bad translation because what happened was uh, the father seemed to die, and, and all the peasants clustered around him and thought he had died, and then he kind of um, wakes up and turns out he's not dead, kind of like the um, old pope. Um, in the new pope, and uh, or the young pope, and you know Jude Law. Did you notice how he lifts his finger? Trouble. Um, 
So it turns out he's not dead, and one of the peasants says, oh my goodness, it's preternatural. <laughs> and I thought, no. <laughs> that's not, what the, that's not what, the, what the peasants actually said. That's not a good translation. Uh, but preternatural is like supernatural, but without the idea of spirits and ghosts, but just something that doesn't seem, it seems uncanny. So Antony's bounty is preternatural. No matter how bad things are for him, he gives away everything. He is always generous to others. He is always um, giving more than he can afford to give to others. So that's what Cleopatra is saying about him. As for his bounty, there was no winter in it. And then, as I say, most editions now have, an autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. But if you look at the first folio, what it actually says is, It doesn't say exactly that, but this is the crucial word. It says, and Antony twas that grew the more by reaping. So what most editors thought is that makes no sense. The contrast is between winter and autumn, and, and reaping is harvesting, is what you do in the autumn. And the idea is that you harvest, and that gives space for more things to grow. So it totally makes sense if it's, as for his bounty, there was no winter in it. And autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. There's also a slightly erotic pun there, which is that the more you play with his stalk, the more it grows. Okay, you got that? Anyone not? I can explain it in more detail. Um, no need. I'd rather be, I, I don't think you did anything but that. Okay. Um, so that all makes sense. So, however, the folio, the printed text, if you go to um, manuscripts and archives, you can, can or you can go online, you can see that it's an Antony twas that grew the more by reaping. So they thought that was a mistake. But how would that mistake be made? Because you can't just say, oh, it's obviously a mistake, because then you can say anything is a mistake. To be or not to be, that is a question. I don't think so. I think <laughs> he was saying, to murder Claudius or to wait a little while, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> um, and it's going to be really hard for you to explain how a mistake of that nature could creep in. So when you make a correction, you have to think about how the mistake could be made. Here it's easy. So what the, what the editors say is this should be an ought. The N is upside down. It's actually a U. And, it's a, and the printer put it in upside down. The capitals don't matter because lots of nouns are capitalized. Don't worry about those. Um, so an autum. And then it should have been MN. And what happened was they took, instead of an M, they had an MI, which looks like, sorry, they had an NI, which can look like an M. And then the E somehow got replaced. But I'm not doing it exactly right. Um, it's a, they make a plausible argument that it should be an autumn twas that grew the more by reaping, which is what you would expect it to be. So. Then the question is, is there an argument that they're wrong besides the fact that, is there, is there an argument 
that an antony makes more sense than an auto. So when we get there, I'm going to make that argument. I think they're wrong to make that correction. I think it actually is an antony twice <coughs> more by reaping. But that's the kind of thing editors do. And what that means is some lines that you know really well, or that at least you should pretend you know really well, some lines that you know really well are not are the creation of editors. And one such line is, so since you've all read Act 1, for you've all read the whole play for today, what am I saying? Um, and reread Act 1 several times. Um, <coughs> when I was in 10th grade, I had to memorize, if it were done, when tis done, anyone? So Macbeth is thinking about uh, whether he should murder Duncan or not. And he thinks he shouldn't because of the consequences. And so he says, someone find it, are you looking for it? Um, if it were done when it is done, then twere well it were done quickly. So what does that mean, that line, if it were done when it is done? Thomas? Does he mean it literally as in, like, if I am going to do this, I would rather it be quick? Yeah, so he partly means that. But um, what do people mean nowadays when they say we're done? We're through. We're not. It's all. Yeah, it's over. It's in the past perfect. Uh, people know the term perfect tense. Uh, do you know why it's called perfect? Because the action is complete and there's really no more to it. Right. Because the action is complete. So, uh, very famously, it's too bad Eric's not here because he would know this. Very famously, after Cicero or Cicero, eventually killed by Antony, um, uh, has defeated the Catiline conspirators and they have been executed, he comes to report this execution to the Senate and he says, Wixe runt, which means they have lived. And that's a way of saying that they're dead. So it's for a novice in Latin, it's puzzling, because how is that saying they're dead? It means their life is over. Their life is all past tense. They have lived. So if it were done when tis done, and twere well it were done quickly, those are three different, slightly different meanings of the word done. If it were all over after I do it, then it would be good for me to do it quickly. If it were done, when tis done, so if it, everything, the whole schmear, the whole shebang were over, I wouldn't have to worry about anything after that. If that were done, when I did the thing, then it would be good to do the thing that I'm thinking about doing quickly. Someone read from there? Someone who's found it? Uh, Act if one, it were seven. Act 1, scene 7, line 1, right? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, go. Okay. Go for it. Um, if it were done when tis done, then twere, yeah. then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. Okay, so stop there for a minute. So if the assassination, the assassination of whom? Duncan. Could trammel up the consequence. What does trammel mean? Does he mean like it could, um, it, he wouldn't face the consequence? 
that the consequence would be um, would be folded in or or baked in or in this case <coughs> netted in with the assassination itself. Yeah. Sort of like there isn't any consequence after the assassination yeah. other than like everything's perfect. After yeah, because yeah, right. when he kills Duncan, he kills the consequences too. Right. So if that could be, um, and catch with his surcease success, so the word trammel means net, and then you get the idea of catching something, um, catch with his surcease success. So not only would he cease to be his surcease but I would get his death and my success simultaneously. Uh, what? Yeah. Uh, success in this case doesn't <clears throat> exactly mean victory, does it? It yeah, means like the, like the secession of yes. what is to come. Right, good. So it is, have you guys been watching Secession season two, or has anyone watched it? Um, there's a lot of Shakespeare in it, it's nice. They have a, they have, they have a lot of Easter eggs uh, to literature, and at one point Coriolanus comes up. Um, isn't that cool? Don't you really want to watch it now? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> you make a lot of references, and I don't know, I don't know what they are. Uh, all right, it's it's an HBO show. Gotcha. Uh, oh, I don't about know. about a press family, kind of based on the Murdochs. I see. Um, so, the um, success means what happens afterwards, like um, who succeeds to the crown. Um, who will be king next. So success, when we use it, and Shakespeare did have a little bit of this meaning for Shakespeare also. When we use it, we mean uh, you get what you want. You've succeeded in what you're doing, but the idea would be you get what you want because you've done the things to with the things which after you do what you want follows. Um, but when you talk about succession, like a succession of numbers, the succession of natural numbers, you're not saying they just get more and more successful as they get bigger. Um, even though seven, eight, nine, nine is still more successful than seven. Um, that is a somewhat different meaning of success, but there are related meanings. So if I could catch with his surcease success, that is, catch everything that, um, that follows his death, that is his ceasing to be, but also get what I want by catching those. So that's a secondary meaning. It's our more common meaning of success, but it's more secondary at the time. That but this blow might be the be all and the end all here. So all that would matter is the blow. It would be everything, and there would be nothing to follow. It would be the end all here. Um, do you know what vice presidential candidate used that phrase? Someone who killed a president? <laughs> oh, wait, no, no, vice president never killed a president. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on which conspiracy theories you um, Sarah Palin used it in a bizarre way. Uh, so at some point, just Google. Um, yeah, she did. But at some point, Google Sarah Palin and be all and end all. Because I have no idea what she was trying to say. Um, but, oh, but she was also never a vice president. Candidate. A candidate. Oh, candidate. Uh, yes. Um, I think, yeah. It, it, so, but what Macbeth means by it is this would be everything, and after this there would be nothing. So that's more of the perfect tense. That this, this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. Okay, keep reading. Uh, <clears throat> but here upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. Okay, so 
that's as far as we, we have to get right this second. But here upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. So time, which is something that you should be following all through Macbeth, uses of the word time, ideas about time itself, strange formulations about time. One of them Dr. Johnson picks up on, and um, he thinks this makes no sense. No, no, no sense at all that um, time will go through the hour. Yeah. Well, here on this, I interpreted. Um, you said it's here in this bank control of time, and what's right after that? We jump, we jump the life to come. We jump the life to come. I interpreted his statement, at least when he just said it, the here on this bank control of time is at this opportunity. Yeah. 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 So it is at this opportunity, but there is a there's a suggested farther uh, meaning to it. Which is, what does it mean to jump the life to come? To risk. To risk? Um, yeah. Is it, is it like the afterlife, kind of? Yeah, the like, life to come is the afterlife. Yeah, I mean, it could yeah. be the rest of his life, but... No, but it, it almost sounds like we jump the life to come. It, it, maybe it's like we jump start the life to come. Maybe that could they be... They didn't jump like, start. No, 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 for Duncan. To, for Duncan, like, jump start his afterlife. Like, um, they, they yeah, so, so <laughs> jump start is an automobile. No, metaphor. no, I know, but like... The, no, I, but you can't get jump out of that. No, but uh, like, I just mean like... Yeah, maybe it is, or it's a, maybe it's a modern like interpretation, but like it sounds like they could be saying, we sort of, we give him a little push <laughs> into <laughs> the life push. to come, into the afterlife. We push him in the place. Yeah, so I, it's hard for me to get jump to mean that. Um, now, jump is jump is a little bit puzzling here, but it's hard for me to get um, jump to mean uh, push. Tell you. Well, the way that I was thinking about it was that um, before he heard this prophecy from the witches, he never expected in his lifetime to ever be king or to uh -huh. like have that opportunity. So to me, it kind of he's kind of saying like, we're going to take this opportunity to create a life that we never thought we yeah. actually were ever going to have. So you're taking life to come as the rest of his life, not necessarily to... like as like an al kind of like a, an alternative life to the one that he imagined for himself. Like he never yeah. imagined being king, but now that it's an opportunity to kind of have that different life. Okay. Yeah. Um, Royce. Um, so my interpretation of this is um, is it sort of like um, is Macbeth going Macbeth going to be king? He would rather um, to give up, sort of give up the the life to come, the afterlife, in order to be king. Yeah. If you translate, if you turn jump into a synonym, skip, it makes perfect sense, right? So skip. You agree? Skip and jump are close synonyms. Yeah. Um, and why is skip used as not not to um, engage in something? Why is that the metaphor? I mean, you, do you all agree that if you skip lunch, it's a metaphor for for um, for the same word that you skip rope with? Yeah. I think I'll skip rope. Um, you jump over. You jump over. Yeah. It's it's uh, you don't go through it. You jump over it. And if you skip the life to come, what that would then mean is that if everything in this life could work out, I would skip the afterlife. I wouldn't 
and what it would mean to skip the afterlife, it's not like his, his choice, but he's saying we would jump the life to come. The least that it means is everyone is supposed to prefer heaven to earth. The, the worst seat in heaven is better than being a king upon earth, but I don't feel that way. I'd be willing to give up all promises of heaven in order to succeed in the modern sense of succeed at what I'm trying to do now. Cassie. Yeah, I don't know if I'm just like rephrasing that at this point, but specifically, I know that this isn't like a Christian context, but like committing a murder is usually frowned upon by like most systems of morality. So, <laughs> bold statement there. Um, but I, I do think that it's not just like he'll prefer his life on earth to heaven. I think it's like a an acknowledgement of the fact that if he believes in salvation in like whatever form he would have perceived that as being, he believes that the action that he's doing is like precluding that and that he will not have that opportunity. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm I'm just thinking because like um like you can skip lunch and then and go straight to dinner, but here it's like the afterlife is is the thing that's coming after. So he can't be jumping that and right. coming back to his succession of, um, of Duncan. Yeah, but um, Matt, then Cassie. Yeah. Um, could we also perceive this as, because I know in a lot of the other uh, Shakespeare, phrase, uh, Shakespeare plays that we read last semester, um, whenever someone referred to the royalty or the crown, they would always say, like, the crown is immortal in a sense. Mm -hmm. Could this be saying sort of that now... Now that Macbeth has this opportunity to perceive the crown, he's, like, immortal in a sense? Yeah, um, but I think in a different sense. So uh, what Matt is referring to is the, is the doctrine of the king's two bodies, which is that there is always a king and there are individual people who fulfill the role of king, who are the, the um, players of the king, but the king is eternal. But, and I think that is on his mind, but in a somewhat different way. Cassie, what were you going to say? Um, well, I was just going to say that if we're using the language of like skipping, and we are thinking about the life to come as an afterlife, like however would have, we, he would have conceptualized it, um, it's very odd to think of him skipping it, because what um, you just said about like you can skip lunch and go straight to dinner, like theoretically, if you're skipping the afterlife, like there isn't a secondary step yeah. after that. Right, which would be fine with him. In other words, you would skip into the void, you could say, jump into the void. Jump over the life to come into the void. I don't think he quite means that. He just means skip as though you're not skipping forward. And he may be um, misled by his own metaphor a little bit, which he frequently is. But it wouldn't be terribly wrong to think that um, you could make that make sense by having it be a jump into nothingness, past even infinite life to come into nothingness. But the crucial thing is here upon this bank and shoal of time. So time is metaphorically what if you talk about a bank and shoal of time? Water. It's a river that's running. And the idea of time as a river, uh, it's a common one and it is one that seems present in Macbeth. But if you're on the bank or shoal, then what are you not doing? Outside of time. You're outside of time. 
So what he has here, and it's, it's impressive and powerful that he should be saying this, is that if you try to think about time, what the puzzle about time is, is that our only notion, our only access of time is the present moment. That's all there is ever, is the present moment. This is something, has anyone read Augustine's Confessions? Uh, so do you remember what Augustine says about time in chapter 11, in book 11? It's been a long time, I know. I mean, it was last semester, but no, I don't remember, I'm sorry. Okay, so Augustine is really puzzled about time. And Augustine is, is uh, writer Shakespeare almost certainly knew. Uh, Augustine is really puzzled about time, as anyone is in the right mood. And um, <laughs> the puzzle is that the only experience we have of time is the present moment. And what's in the past, what's in the future, they don't exist. All that exists is the present moment. Yet somehow we seem to have an experience of duration. That is, we can tell that the class is going on and on, or the class is flying by. And yet, it's as though, if this were a movie, there's only one frame at a time that exists, that's being projected. So how can that frame contain within it a feeling of a long time or a short time? So people who've taken uh, the, the regular Shakespeare course with me will know that I think this is an issue <coughs> in Hamlet that early on in Hamlet, um, how many people don't know anything about Hamlet? Okay, you have a great treat in front of you. Um, I hope so. So early on in Hamlet, uh, the ghost appears, Hamlet's uh, best friend Horatio uh, sees the ghost and tries to talk to it, but the ghost won't, won't talk back to Horatio. Horatio then tells Hamlet about seeing the ghost. Horatio and a couple of other people who have seen the ghost tell Hamlet about what they've seen. And Hamlet asks, stayed it long? And Horatio's answer is, while one with moderate haste might tell an hundred. That is, the ghost was there, you could count, it was about a minute and 40 seconds. Um, and you could count to about a hundred. Uh, the two other people who've seen the ghost, but who are less reliable than Horatio, say, longer, longer! And Horatio says, not when I saw it. So Horatio has a good sense. He's, he's a figure of accuracy in the play. Um, I'm partly saying a little bit more about him than is strictly necessary, because he should be compared to Banquo in Macbeth and to Ina Barbas in Antony Cleopatra as the best friend figure who Shakespeare is amazingly interested in in a whole bunch of tragedies. In comedies as well, but really interested in, in in that figure in a whole bunch of tragedies. So later, Hamlet is now in a situation where there is um, no way that he can keep delaying, and there is no way that things are not about to come to an end. And Hamlet, in that situation, Horatio says, the king is going to know what you did to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern really soon. Um, and Hamlet says, it will be soon. The interim is mine. So there's this amazing word, interim. The interim is mine. And then he says, and a man's life 
no more than to say one. So early on in the play, Shakespeare is saying, if you want to measure time, count. That's how we measure time. Uh, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, or you know, one Stratford and Avon, two Stratford and Avon. <laughs> um, and if you count, you know how much time passes. But if you count, all that you're ever doing is counting the present moment. So instead of saying one, two, three, four, five, what you're actually saying is, but with different names, one, 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 one. Because that's as long as your life is. All you ever have is the now, the time to say one. And everything before that is gone forever. And everything after that doesn't exist. That's what Augustine says as well. And this for him is a huge puzzle. Um, his famous line is, if no one asks me what time is, then I know it. But as soon as someone asks me, I don't know what time is. And this is one of the puzzles for Augustine, is that we experience time instantaneously, and yet we call it time. So Macbeth is saying, if all that exists is the present, if I could really believe that, if, to quote the title of Baba Ram Dass's famous book, he just died, um, be here now, that now is all that there is and all that there ever can be, then if I could stay in the eternal now, that's obviously not a Shakespearean way of putting it, but I think the idea is there. If I could stay in the now, if that's all that happened, if I could stay upon this bank and shoal of time, I don't have to get into the river and go towards the afterlife. I can jump out of the river onto the bank and shoal of time and just have this moment. There's a great moment in Samuel Beckett, which I think is somewhat similar. Uh, the, the do people know about Beckett? His characters, they're all, um, they're mainly bums. Um, they're people whose lives are not great, and they don't have very high self-esteem. And um, there's a narrator in one of the stories, in the book called Stories and Texts for Nothing, um, who has to go somewhere. He gets a cab. He happens to have some money because his father's just died and left him some money, which he's, it's not going to last long. And uh, he gets a cab. And um, he asks the cab driver to drive him around all day. And the cab driver says, I can't. I have to go to a funeral at 3, but I'll drive you around till then. And so they drive around and do nothing. And um, at the end of the story, it's midnight, and the, cab, the cabbie finally leaves it. And he remembers the funeral that the guy was supposed to go to at 3. But now the cabbie has left him and, at midnight. And he says with a kind of proud wonder, he had preferred me to a funeral. This was a fact that would endure forever. So um, that moment, it's a single moment. But the moment itself has become a fact, and the fact will endure forever. So that's a way that the moment of time and eternity, how they can telescope into each other. Uh, there's an Ashbury poem that begins, I am still completely happy, which means he's not. And, um, but if you think about moments, which you've all had, and 
I think all will have still, um, of moments where things seem worth it, like the first good kiss. It's like this moment, yeah, it's true, I'm going to get old and die, but this moment makes life worth it. And that idea that you can live in the moment, that idea is what Macbeth is thinking there. Here upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. Now, Nakul, do you remember who Pope's Dunciad was written against? Alexander the Great? No, that's, uh, <laughs> that's Alexander's Feast. Now, the Dunciad was Pope, um, the poet Alexander Pope, who had done an edition of Shakespeare, which was terrible. Oh, uh, is this the one where there's the two people who are arguing with each other? No, it's like <laughs> heroic couplets, and there's yeah. two figures who are arguing with each other, and they're arguing about, like, Protestant versus no. No, that, that's okay. It's, that's my fault. No, that's, um, sorry, um, Absalom. Um, oh, yeah. Um, no, this is, so, um, that's Absalom and Kittifel. No, so Pope's longest work is a book called The Dunciad. Do you know, Tommy? Um, I don't. However, before we move to that, I wanted to make a note is that you talked about how Shakespeare was really interested in this, like, best friend character mm -hmm. and, of course, the tragedy of them because they usually die. Do you think, because one of the greatest tragedies of that very specific character that actually existed is Ibrahim, which was Suleiman's slave. Uh -huh. Do you think that Shakespeare would have known about that? Probably not, but yeah. he did know about biblical analogs. Mm -hmm. um, he might have, but I don't think so. He, you know, he was interested in um, the Crusades, but yeah. I don't know how much he knew. But that's a good question. You should, you should look it up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this also goes all the way back to the Iliad, to the friendship between Achilles and Patroclus, and it goes back to Gilgamesh, which Shakespeare certainly didn't know because it's only rediscovered in the 19th century. But um, that um, those ideas of friendship are ones that you can find in a lot of places, and that Shakespeare is particularly interested in. Um, okay, so the Dunciad is Pope did an edition of Shakespeare. Uh, one thing that's interesting about it is that uh, Pope printed certain things as poetry that other, um, other people thought were prose and vice versa. And there are places in Shakespeare where it's hard to tell whether you're reading prose or poetry. Printers sometimes messed around with poetry and printed it as prose because they were running out of space. Um, remember that you had to print the whole page. And if they printed, um, because you're doing... Again, if you imagine this as like a sheet of the New York Times, what you have is um, this will be like page um, 32. This will be page one. What will be on the other side of page one? If you were to open this up, page two, and on the other side of page 32? Right. So that means that you have to figure out what's going to be on pages 31 and 32 at the same time as you're printing pages one and two. And so they had pretty good heuristics for doing it. One person thinks, but I'm sure he's wrong, that the printers actually counted letters. I think that's insane that they would do that. Um, but they had good heuristics for um, how much type they would have. And they could monkey around with it a little bit, a little bit, you know, like the old signs that say, think, Ahead. Oops. 
Um, but they did think ahead. They knew how to do it. Um, but they would sometimes get it wrong. And one of the ways that they would, then they would have to do things when they got it wrong. If they got it wrong and they had too much space, illustrations! If they got it wrong and didn't have enough space, well, let's print some poetry as prose because then we can go to the end of the line and we can compress. I feel like that's the great scale of, of like life, like more good to bad, like illustrations and putting poetry as prose. Right, like, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that all of life is a choice between, yeah. or all of life is a, is a, a scale, is a scale and, and an alternation of illustrations and uh-oh, prose. <laughs> so Pope um, did his edition of Shakespeare, and he also said various things about what he thought the text was, and there was a really crappy writer, but an unbelievably brilliant editor named Lewis Tybalt, T-H. So if you know the name of one editor, this is the one you need to know. Spelled Theobald, but pronounced Tybalt. Um, who did really the first great edition of Shakespeare. And a lot of his edition was, and he reviewed Pope and just talked about how wrong Pope was. So Pope got his revenge by making Tybalt the villain of this great satirical work called the Dunciad. And the Dunciad is a um, far greater work than Tybalt's edition of Shakespeare, or at least what Tybalt added to his edition of Shakespeare. But Tybalt was um, probably the single most influential and brilliant editor of Shakespeare's. So he was a great editor, crappy writer. Pope was a great writer and a crappy editor. Um, so next time you get marked down for not editing a paper that you've written, just say, I should rather be Pope than Tybalt. And I think most people won't understand what you're talking about, but try. <laughs> but the one person who does, yeah. you're getting an A. Right. Um, yes, an A, or as the typist puts it, an A. Um, lowercase, uppercase, I don't know. What? Okay, I do remember one thing about this poem, but it's extremely unacademic. Okay. There's the part where it's like, isn't there like um, a metaphor for like the no, no, that that also. That's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's like, my no. Not all, all the embarrassment, none down. of the reward, yeah. <laughs> and loads of shit. Right. So it's Shadwell, of course. Yeah. And loads of shit almost blocked the way. Yeah. Right. Loads of Shadwell. Is that also by Pope? That no, that's by his by his um, revered um, model drawing. <laughs> oh, yes. Teach and teach and teach. <laughs> but at least you remember the SH. The SH dash. Good. See, there's a lot that you can build upon, but upon a foundation of shit. Um, all right. So, um, Tybalt looked at what the folio said. And what the folio actually said is, here upon this bank and school of time. Someone, do you have, do you have it there? That passage? Uh, okay, so just look at the bottom. Um, that is to say, look at the, um, what does the, it? on the bottom of the page where they have yeah. the, the typist variations. Do you mm -hmm. see it? Yeah, it says school, S-C-H-O-O-L-E. Yeah, so here upon this bank and S-C-H-O-O-L-E of time, 
we jump for life to come. So this bank and school of time. Does he mean a school like a group, or does he mean a school as in quite literally uh, like a school of? Teaching? Well, who's the he? Um, you're okay. The, in, and so you said that on the original folio, it said the school of time. Yeah. Okay. Well, then if if it was if that was originally Shakespeare's intention. Yes. If. Do, if it was, does he mean a group? Right. Or does he mean something that teaches? Right. Yes. Well, I mean, if you go with what the editors have turned it into, because a school of fish is the same as a shoal of fish. Right. So yes. I guess that's one interpretation. Otherwise, it, I mean, also, like, a school in theory could just be a group of kids. You yeah. Know, it's like, so. Here upon this bank and school of kids of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right Lemberg of time. <laughs> yeah, let's just go to school with the kids. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, it's. Yeah, I would just because the school of fish is the same as a shoal, so I mean, I guess yeah. that I would. I can see where that I can see how that interpretation got to where it is. But yeah. do they call a school of fish a school of fish, or I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, they did. No. Um, oh, did they? Did you have the phrase "school of fish"? I believe you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, like in, in my yeah. yeah. I was also talking about water and time. Right. That would also make sense in yeah. terms of that. But. Yeah. 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 Okay. No. Okay. So, the so one question is, how does Tybalt get Shoal out of school? Everyone accepts this. So here's a really famous line in Shakespeare's: "This bank and Shoal of time." It's a beautiful line. And everyone accepts this. But this is an editorial emendation. This is not what it says in the folio. And by the way, there is just, again, advanced Shakespeare, so you need to know, um, uh, you need to get into the weeds a little bit. Um, there are, in many Shakespeare plays, there are two versions of the plays. And in some, there are actually three. In, and the reason is that when a Shakespeare play, when it was produced, um, they tended to be really wildly popular. And people wanted copies of the plays. And there were ways of getting copies. Um, the most legal way was if Shakespeare or his publisher saw that a play was really popular, and Shakespeare gave the manuscript of the play to, to the publisher, and the publisher published it. Um, those were in books about this size. Can I look this sure. up? Um, not not Boston Globe subway size, but this size, which are called, anyone know? Quartos. Quartos. Why? Because you would take this, you would take a page this size and fold it twice. And when you folded it twice, it would be two squared. And so instead of having four pages, you would have 16 pages um, out of a single sheet of paper. That also meant that you were dividing, when you printed it, you were dividing each sheet into four sheets. Um, and then you get something that that size. And that's when you have to cut the pages, is when you have quartos because the pages are folded. Um, so sometimes you would have what's called a good quarto, which is a quarto that was basically authorized by Shakespeare or by the Lord Chamberlain's men or by the King's men. Um, the Lord Chamberlain's men and the King's men was the name, were the names of Shakespeare's theatrical company. Um, sometimes you would have bootleggers who would go into the theater and they would take down the plays as fast as they could in shorthand while they were watching them. 
Um, so if you guys ever um, look for look online for the the screenplays of movies and you or TV shows, and what you get is without speech prefixes, you get all the lines because someone has gone to the trouble of just typing out all the lines, watching and watching, and typing out all the lines. The similar thing, except it's occurring in real time. Maybe they go twice to get the lines they missed, but they're taking it down in shorthand. Sometimes you would go to a play, uh, you would read a play, and one part would be like perfect. And then the same character whose lines were always perfect, the cues for those lines used to be really good as well. And the scenes where that character appeared would be pretty good, and the scenes where that character didn't appear would be just a complete dog's breakfast. <laughs> that would be an indication that the bootleggers hired an actor to recite the play, and the actor was really good at his, it was always his, all the actors, you know, are male. The actor would recite his part perfectly, and his cues really well, and the scenes that he was in, he would know, and the other scenes where he was busy vaping or whatever, um, he wouldn't know so well. And so those are called the bad quartos. And in the bad quarto of Hamlet, for example, you, you get, and this is true, to be or not to be, I there's the rub, I there. That's how the bad quarto of Hamlet begins that speech. So, Oh, excellent. <laughs> so in... Um, Macbeth, Macbeth is, is a very short play, which is why it's always done in high school. It's also in some ways an inconsistent play, and it only exists in one version, which is the folio version. There is no quarto for Macbeth. It is thought, it's known, that uh, Macbeth was performed for James I. And the idea, the belief is that Shakespeare took a longer play, or had a longer version of Macbeth, but shortened it because there was a lot of stuff going on for James's coronation, and so people wanted a really rapid play, and he cut it. And the only version of Macbeth that we have is this cut version, which is the version that was then published seven years after his death, which is when the folio was published in his honor about seven years after his death. So a lot of issues with Macbeth are textual. And they made, they, the play had to exist for seven years after Shakespeare died, and it was existed in a cut version. And of course, there are copies made for each member. This is, I'm simplifying too much a little bit here, but there are copies made for each member of the cast to learn their parts with. In fact, each person only got their own parts. And um, so Macbeth is a cut version put together probably after Shakespeare's death. And so there are mistakes in it. And um, bank and school, what Tybalt is thinking is, what does a bank have to do with a school? If you pronounce it, it may be pronounced shoal, shul or shoal. So this bank and shoal of time. And then... What you do is you listen to what it sounds like and you realize that's what the correct word is, that it's been misheard. There's a place where Shakespeare makes a mistake. You may have noticed um, that Shakespeare gets Macbeth's father's name wrong because he makes the same mistake that we do, which is that he reads 
a long S. If you ever look at the Constitution, you know that S's are, they're the integration sign S's. Um, and they often look like F's. And he actually read the name Singal as Fingal. And so there's an F where there should be an S. And that seems to be Shakespeare's mistake. It could be the typesetter's mistake. Um, and so those kinds of mistakes are creeping into Macbeth all the time. Tybalt said, bank is river, shoal is like a bank. It's a hendiatus, which is two nouns used um, to mean the same thing. So bank and shoal of time makes perfect sense. And it's a beautiful, beautiful line. But people have pointed out that at school, you sit on benches that are called banks. And um, so the bank and school of time is time teaches you a lesson. And that, Tommy, is what Shakespeare might have meant by it. Um, but it's not clear. I think you ought, to you ought to decide that Tybalt is right about this, that it is bank and shoal of time, because it would be a damn shame. Uh, you know the quick story about Einstein? I'll just tell you this and let you go. That when the um, solar eclipse of 1918 proved that the general theory of relativity was right, because he made a prediction of how much light would bend in gravity, and everyone said that's ridiculous, and then it was right. Someone came up to him, a journalist came up to him and said, what would you have done if you'd been disproved? And if, if it hadn't confirmed your theory, and Einstein's answer was, then I would have felt very sorry for the Lord God. The theory was correct. Um, so feel really sorry for Shakespeare if he wrote school, because Scholl is correct. Um, it's canon. OK, keep up with the syllabus. Um, see you guys on Tuesday. Have a good weekend. The Book of Will. No. It's about, like, right after Shakespeare dies and the King's Men sort of go about the process oh, cool. of producing his plays to be written down. Uh,